uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there in cyberspace. Close your eyes, and when I say the word hacker, what is the first image that pops into your mind? For me, it's always going to be Serial, Matthew Lillard's character from the movie Hackers. Weird hair, a little too focused, driven by uh, an ideological need for information to be free, copies of 2600 magazines scattered around his coffee table, and always one step away from being busted by the feds. That image is, and always was, a fantasy. What hackers are and what they've become is complicated. Um, The world has changed. And uh, what was once synonymous with criminal has become, through years of activism and hard work, something different. Hacker means so much more than it used to. And the story of that change and how hackers went from criminals to security experts and uh, respected, if not always trusted, members of society is the subject of the excellent study, Wearing Many Hats, The Rise of the Professional Security Hacker. The authors are here with us today to give us uh, that brief history of hackers, especially focusing on that wonderful period in the 90s, the golden age, as they call it. Uh, The first is Harvard Anthropology Professor Gabriella Coleman, and we also have data and society researcher Matt Gertzen. I'm Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. So thank you both so much for coming onto the show to talk with us about all this. Thanks for having us. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so first, let's let's. I like to do very basic stuff at the very top. Can you give us kind of the early etymology of the word hacker? Yeah. Sure. Um, the early etymology came from MIT, a university in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, it was a term that members of the Tech Model Railroad Club would use to designate those technologists in the club who are willing to kind of experiment with the railway and do things differently. Um, Another adjoining kind of um, meaning of the term hack was also a prank at MIT. And the MIT students were quite famous for um, doing kind of various pranks, especially one big one a year. Uh, where they might, for example, put a fire truck, a real fire truck, on top of the MIT dome. But eventually, the term at MIT and elsewhere came to be used for a kind of obsessive computer enthusiast who could, you know, do amazing and beautiful things with computers. Okay, so the associations kind of at the start were not immediately criminal, right? It was kind of like um, somebody who was good at this, uh, like a prankster. There's always kind of a little bit of element of chaos to the thing. When does it kind of become something a little bit more dangerous? Well, I can feel that one, I guess. Um, It seems like uh, that shift kind of happens in the late 1970s or early 1980s where, um, you know, some figures who identified with the the you know the term hacker maybe in a more old school MIT kind of way um, were also became interested in uh, security, but more specifically um, when the media started using the term hacker to uh, label uh, people who are interested in gaining unauthorized access to systems on the the early internet or and. Uh, so, the, so actually, a lot of hackers um, in the MIT or in the uh, uh, yeah in the uh, MIT sense uh, kind of rejected that labeling and uh, and called for those people to be called crackers rather than hackers uh, to connote the way that they were interested in cracking into systems or cracking passwords. See, I always took um, cracker to mean like my my background. I guess I was raised in Silicon Prairie. North Texas um, as a teenager in the nineties. And I always kind of made the distinction between hacker and crackers. Like hacker is someone who is kind of actively seeking to enter systems and commit some sort of mischief or crime. And a cracker was somebody who was purely interested in uh, the pleasure of breaking into the thing for the, for the sake of it. But there's something a little bit more pure to the cracker. They were, there was like somebody that was solving a puzzle Right. Am I just having a misconception or is there any truth to that? Well, I think what you point to is that um, these terms were floating. And in part, the definition of cracker that Matt 
was referring to came from the um, hacker jargon file and Eric Raymond in specific, who came from the more MIT tradition and was trying to differentiate, you know, let's just call them builders from breakers, right? Um, And the term cracker um, and the term hacker, in spite of certain places where there is origins or definitions, take on their own lives, right? Where people have a different kind of um, meaning in their head. I mean, for example, for some people, a cracker uh, is someone who cracked uh, games or software so that you can sort of access them as well. And so there's always kind of uh, multiple meanings and polyvalence that comes with these terms, which is was one of the tough things about writing this report. We had to be very clear how we were using the terms, how they were found historically, um, and then how they were contested in the community as well. Can you get into, I think, I think this is a, there's a lot of fascinating things about this study, but one of the things I think was really interesting was how this was all conducted, like how you guys gathered the information, where you found it, who you talked to. Can you kind of talk about how you build this history out of something that has like, is some of it sitting on all these old BBS databases, right? Like how do you track this stuff down and, and, and pin it all down? Yeah, I mean, we kind of uh, you know had like a mixed methods approach to the study. So the real like um, I guess like backbone of our research was uh, a series of I think around thirty um, interviews, like typically quite long, you know, three hour, sometimes longer interviews with um, some people who are core figures in this kind of shift from uh, you know rogue underground hacker to security, you know, paid uh, security researcher. But then we supplemented that with, you know, a copious amount of archival data. And um, I mean, one of the nice things about this subject matter is that, you know, hackers, you know, whether we're talking about the, you know, unauthorized access type of hackers or the, you know, MIT type of hackers, they tend to be uh, pretty diligent uh, self-archivists. So there's a lot of material that remains available uh, online and, you know, a lot of mailing lists um, that uh, where a lot of the conversations that we uh, talk about can be, you know, can be seen in their, in their entirety. Um, there are, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting though, because as we were going through and doing this research, you know, like one year to the next, some of the, the, the references we would have saved, you'd click on the link and it would be gone. So uh, I mean, we also owed a huge debt to the the Internet Archives Wayback Machine project, um, which uh, you know has kept a lot of the the personal web pages of some of these hacker figures alive. Um, but yeah, I mean, the Usenet archives uh, are, seem to be uh, harder and harder to find, and uh, some things like that. But there's there's a there's a lot of archives out there, so we kind of triangulated between the interviews and the, the archival material that, yeah. that we were able to get a hold of. Yeah, maybe I'll say one more thing about it. I mean, I call this like living histories of the internet. It's historical material, but you could really juxtapose the archive with interviews. And that really helps for, you know, verifying some, some facts. Some were really, really, really hard uh, to do so. Another thing that was great were talks. From DEFCON, from HOPE, we, we watched them, we listened to them, and that was also really incredible material, um, very rich material for this. Yeah, I'll point out for, for people that are, are listening to this later and not watching it live that you are wearing a DEFCON shirt as we sit here and talk, <laughs> which I thought was very, very appropriate. Um, That's right, form and function. So, yeah, so at the, the early outset of this phenomenon, hacking, um, these are really intelligent people that are playing around with new systems. Um, when does it first kind of become what is considered a criminal act? What precipitates that? And when do laws start getting passed? I mean, even prior to the passing of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which I think was passed in 1986, though so there were some precursor um, laws but as, as a standalone, it was CFAA um, in 1986. That really, I think, cemented, um, sorry about that, the time and period where there was 
massive concern around criminality and hacking and the and the movie War Games particularly important for that history. Um, I believe it was played for Ronald Reagan and there was a kind of a lot of hysteria that was built up around that. But prior to that period, there were certainly um, many news stories um, that concerned, uh, you know, criminal or intrusive hacking. Sometimes it was non-malicious. Sometimes it was malicious. Um, and certainly even before the rise of hacking, there was phone freaking. Uh, the phone freaks were kind of the precursors to the security hackers because they explored systems. They were concerned with security, with often fixing the phone system. And, and, and the FBI also uh, went after some of these phone freaks as well. So, you know, there's like the, the, the longer history and then the more immediate history where in the mid-1980s, there was, I would say, like the real consolidation, both because the law matched, um, yeah, uh, the law kind of cemented the sort of paranoia that exploded at the time around hackers. Yeah, I think it's the amount of times that um, government policy at the federal level changed because Ronald Reagan watched a movie uh, is pretty fascinating. Um, one of my favorites is always that they showed him uh, the day after and he decided to pursue nuclear, <laughs> nuclear drawdown with Russia. And he wrote about it in his diary. That's like, a, you know, you can go look it up. Um, just fascinating. But, you know, back to hacking, uh, speaking of war games, um, playing in our intro there, I, I, I heard both of you kind of giggle uh, when you heard it. Um, so around also this time, what I would call like hacking culture develops, right? Can we talk about like the, the development of that and like what that entails? I think you kind of put it and starts to kind of grow in the 1980s when this underground begins. Was that a direct consequence of the, the laws, do you think, or was there more going on there? I mean, my sense is that a lot of the small groups that first formed in the 80s and then there was also many groups in the 90s, um, they formed independent of the laws. And it was in part just because people found each other on things like first BBSs and then internet relay chat, right? Um, prior to that, the phone freaks found each other as well and would get together uh, on party lines. And there were also uh, kind of local BBSs for phone freaks. So there was always, you know, independent of what was going on in the legal sphere, just plenty of opportunities for hackers to get together, to associate. They had named crews. Um, you know, many of them also published different zines um, or followed, you know, the Uber zine frack, which was particularly important for the security community. And I just think the kind of uh, legal ramifications and threats um, just gave the community a kind of heightened sense of itself, right? Uh, because there was kind of always that threat. But interestingly enough, I mean, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not sure if we like actually wrote about this in the report. If we did, it was maybe in passing. I mean, many of the 1990s crews, even though there were some big busts in the late 80s, weren't as threatened by the law. Um, and they weren't as concerned with, you know, the FBI kind of knocking on their door which I found very interesting and kind of counterintuitive. Yeah. Can you talk about that, Matt? Yeah. I mean, I think like, just to add to what Biela said, I think like the, the role of this kind of, uh, you know, the passing of the laws and kind of like the, you know, the hacker crackdown as Bruce Sterling's called it. Um, like it, it, I think it also helped to contribute to the creation of a hacker culture and a hacker scene by giving folks like a sense of, of like a foil or like an other against which they were defined, you know, so they were able to, uh, you know, see themselves as different and, and under, under attack and kind of um, come together that way. But yeah, I think a lot of the people we take uh, as our subjects in the report uh, certainly didn't have the same kind of legal um, uh, immediate legal risks that a lot of the hackers in the late eighties and early nineties experienced and in fact some of the phenomena that we talk about like the the full disclosure movement 
hosted on, you know, as, as we, t- we talk about it in relation to the mailing list bug track, which was started by a member of the uh, Legion of Doom, um, you know, shortly after they, among other early hacker groups had, um, had been, you know, targeted by law enforcement. So you could in some ways see the, some of the, the cultural developments we're talking about as like a direct attempt to find a way to engage with the, these kind of security puzzles and, um, uh, and things that these, that these people enjoyed so much in a, in a less, uh, well, antagonistic, but less legally, you know, problematic way. And I have two questions here before we kind of move on a little bit. And I definitely want to get into the full disclosure movement because I think that's pretty core to kind of what you're talking about. Um, but first, can we talk a little bit about were there ideological underpinnings here? Like what was the thought movement of these early hacker groups? Like what did they believe? Because again, Silicon Prairie – Growing up reading cyberpunk novels, um, the line was always information wants to be free, right? And should be freely accessed by everybody. Was that true? Was that just like a line? What, you know, what's, what was going on there? What's the ontology Um, of the hacker space? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a great question and complicated one to answer insofar as, um, you know, among some of the groups that we were looking at, certainly there was a sort of anti-authoritarian bent, right? There was also a kind of commitment to getting knowledge out there. And a little bit later, we'll talk about that in relation to full disclosure. Um, Certainly, some of these groups also left the shadows. They had a very, very strong kind of commitment to sort of advocacy around security, and that's a certain type of politics, but among the groups that we were looking at, um, in, in other aspects, they were remarkably apolitical at some other level, um, with a few exceptions. The cult of the dead cow, which popularized the term hacktivism, certainly had um, their foot in uh, politics around human rights and technology. But many of the kind of security-focused uh, groups and individuals were immersed in um, computer networks and breaking into them and learning about them initially for kind of intellectual edification. Right. And again, there was a kind of anti-authoritarian bent and, um, many of the materials that were being published that they were reading. Um, but the groups themselves seem to be more concerned about their own, um, intellectual autonomy, and then eventually kind of transitioned to kind of security advocacy. And one, you know, there's 2600, uh, which is a very important zine, which um, was committed and is committed to making hacker politics and technology more accessible. And some of the groups that we looked at and the individuals that we interviewed, you know, tended to be very familiar with 2600. They were maybe participants in the monthly meetings, but over time tended to stray away from there uh, precisely because it wasn't kind of technical enough uh, compared to their interests. But there were other currents that were very political at the time and that, um, you know, consolidated even more later. They just tended not to be the focus of um, this particular study. Uh, another thing you guys have this kind of aside about that I think is really interesting and really important and also something I hadn't considered, never really read about in this space. Who gets to be a hacker? Who gets to participate in these early days? What are, say, the material conditions that allow for a hacker and, a, and to kind of rise up through the ranks? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, there were a number of, by the early 1990s, kind of a number of different venues had popped up where hacker sociality could, could occur, where, where people could come together. So there was the, you know, in the earliest form, there was the, you know, BBSs where people could dial into other computers and leave messages from one another and share files and so on. Um, and at that time, it seems like, you know, the, the criteria of entry was basically like ha- knowing that something exists and, you know, having the, 
the wherewithal to answer questions in a certain way to gain access to some of the more private, uh, some of the more private systems. But as time went on, of course, um, I think like as, as things became more materialized, partially from like, um, you know, the emergence of 2,600 meetups, regional meetups and so on, um, you know, took on like a more of a classic social dimension where people would, would come to things and you would, you would be welcomed or not based on various criteria, not only interest or the, the ability to show up. So we talked to some, you know, female uh, hackers who at that time felt very excluded because they, they weren't the kind of default subject position. Um, and also at, uh, you know, conferences, also material, but also in the 1990s, like IRC, Internet Relay Chat, really became, I think, in many ways, the core of like the day-to-day um, hacker scene. And uh, again, there was like, even though people could could show up with, with uh, you know, pseudonyms or whatever, there was a, uh, you know, there was a certain type of culture in place and certain people felt excluded just by the the, the, the mode of discourse and so on. And towards the end of the 1990s, you know, a lot of these IRC channels became increasingly like um, prone to like gatekeeping and um, people would be like quizzed on, uh, you know, technical know-how uh, in order to, to not be kicked out of certain channels or things like that. So, um, yeah, I think like as time went on, the, the scene became more and more kind of like technocratic in a way. Um and less like um, about just like a shared interest in in a in a certain culture or relationship to technology. Yeah, at a certain point, it becomes about uh, keeping the culture going for the culture's sake, and not necessarily the curiosity and interest in technology that brought everybody there in the first place, right? Um, as it begins to like put down roots, I guess, and grow. Um, Let's let's switch tracks here and then talk about how the community changes, right? In the '90s, things there's like this concerted effort to reform the image of the hacker. Uh, what is the full disclosure movement? So, I mean, I guess I can I can take that on. So, it's it's unclear to us when exactly the term full disclosure started being used, but, um, certainly by like early 1990s, it was, it was pretty commonly, um, you know, pretty commonly used to describe basically a relationship to information about security vulnerabilities where the, the person who possessed the information would disclose it publicly. Uh, I mean, often, in you know very selective channels so it was public but like it, it disclosed in places where not that many people were um positioned to see it necessarily you know so like pretty pretty niche mailing lists and usenet groups and so on but fundamentally it was based on the idea that all information about um computer security and computer security vulnerabilities and or vulnerabilities in particular software or hardware should be in the public domain, um, both to put pressure on um, on companies to imp- to uh, close off those vulnerabilities, and also to uh, enable uh, education and um, and also t- so that you know early systems administrators uh, might be able to um, know about that information and make changes to their own. Networks maybe by disabling certain software so they, their users weren't uh, threatened by the uh, vulnerability in question. So, uh, sorry, that was a kind of a rambling, uh, rambling response that didn't necessarily get at everything that's important to say. But uh, another thing that's really crucial to note is full disclosure was was in many ways a reaction to the the dominant attitude towards uh, computer security issues at the time, which was kind of represented by uh, an organization called CERT, which uh, came about in the late 1980s, largely as a response to the uh, the internet worm created by a student named Robert Morris, or sorry, Robert, uh, yeah, Robert Tappan Morris Jr. Um, 
And uh, the attitude of CERT was that computer security vulnerabilities should be should be kept private and shared among the affected uh, parties, so among the software vendors and institutions that were most affected by them. And so a lot of the early proponents of full disclosure were basically directly reacting to that um, to that like ethos and uh, yeah I don't know <laughs> have I, what have Let I missed me, here real sorry go ahead nothing I mean just one last thing it was it was was wildly controversial at the time you know and that was partly why it was effective and it put hackers on the map just at the moment you know they were sort of had already a, a sort of pretty bad public image. So as they um, were putting full disclosure out there and making kind of technical arguments around why it was a valid method, they were also doing a kind of media reform as well at the very same time. This this is kind of like um, an early battle in the uh, walled garden versus open source philosophy, right? And this is kind of hackers kind of starting to come to the fore and pick sides in this in this argument. Can you tell us about, you know, we mentioned a little bit earlier, can you tell us about bug track and why it's important to what goes on here? Yeah, so uh bug track was created in 1993 by um a couple well, a few hackers who were members of the Legion of Doom, LOD, which was one of the most uh infamous, you know, notorious early, you know, hacker crews um, that was, you know, widely discussed in the media and uh, was subject to a lot of FBI or law enforcement attention, Secret Service. Um, And um, prior to, so (laughs) shortly after this, this kind of criminal uh, or uh, law enforcement interest, um, Oh, sorry, I, I I messed up. Bug track was created by a single member of the Legion of Doom right. named Scott Chasen. Right. Um, but 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 a couple of years prior to that, three members of the Legion of Doom had created uh, Comsec, a security uh, early security com- services company. It was it was the first uh, first time any hackers had had kind of switched over to the vendor side and, and tried to create a a security company. And it was met with a tremendous amount of skepticism, both from the hacker community and also from the computer security, uh, the nascent kind of security, computer security institution and um, establishment. Um, the The hacker community saw these, well, there's, so, there's so much context that uh, that is relevant here. It's hard, it's hard to know what to, Focus on exactly. Um, Did I give you too big a question? Basically, well, the, the Legion of Doom at that time was uh, was engaged in a uh, a huge dispute with another hacker crew called the Masters of Deception, mm-hmm. MOD. And so, Comsec, the creation of Comsec in, for some hackers was seen as a way for the these the LOD hackers to like gain uh, gain like insider information through like the clients that they were working with. So basically being able to uh, operate on in, in early cyber infrastructure uh, with certain privileges that were not available to other hacker crews. And then of course the computer security establishment was skeptical of Comsec because they, um, they were hackers, <laughs> they were hackers and they, they thought maybe they were doing exactly that same thing as well. You know, it's the, so, um, it's the arsonist or the firefighter, right? Exactly. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the, one of the metaphors that, or, you know, there's a, a, a style, a, a class of metaphor that repeats throughout our report, which is, you know, the question of whether uh, professionalizing hackers are, you know, whether it's, whether it's advisable to hire a former arsonist to be a fire marshal, you know, just because they know how to set fires doesn't mean that they, they are the best person to protect you from fires and so on. So there's you know, versions of that metaphor repeat on into the early 2000s and probably, probably today as well. Um, so after Comsec f- folds due to this, this scrutiny, um, one of the, the LOD members who had started Comsec, Scott Chasen, uh, he, 
Wait, was it Scott Chase or was it Chris Goggins? Now I'm now I'm it was, uh, it was Scott, Scott Chase. I'm mixed up. Yeah. It was Scott Chase. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, yeah. I full full disclosure, I <laughs> got only like two hours of sleep last night. I'm having almost a psychedelic experience right now, but um <laughs> Well, we'll, I've, got, we'll get I've got the article in front of me right here. Shortly after the failure of ComSec <laughs> cool. in 1993, Scott Chasen yeah. founded the bug track mailing list. Right. Yeah, you can yeah. you can fact check me in real time using the material yeah. that I. That, yeah. that I <laughs> um, can I jump in for a moment, yeah, though, yeah, based on yeah, what you yeah, said? Sure. Just because, I mean, obviously, bug track was important because people sh- share the technical information around full disclosure and drop vulnerabilities, sometimes even exploits. Um, but one of the key sociological changes that it helped create is that different communities that were not in conversation with each other, the hackers, a system administrator, some academics, others who are just like interested in security and, and, and came on board, old school, more Unixy hackers uh, in the MIT tradition came together to talk about security. And this was important uh, for many reasons, but I'll just highlight two very quickly. One, which is there was a kind of creation of an independent group of people interested in security. And so while we focus in mostly on hackers, like this whole group, I think, was important in shedding or putting kind of critical pressure on the vendors uh, later. And then the other thing is, even as there was kind of media, cultural, and linguistic work that some hackers, and especially the group The Loft did, to kind of um, renovate their image, just having these hackers who are formerly part of pretty secretive associations, right, be able to converse uh, publicly uh, with others who were not hackers, I think helped to rehabilitate their image, right? There was actually sociological relationship and um, Matt, you know, wrote the section on full disclosure and very nicely you know, came up with the phrase that this was like drawing on an academic Peter Gallison, this was a trading zone, right? Where differently positioned groups come together. And that was so central to, again, at least having a group of people go, you know, these, these hackers, they know something and they're not so like scary. Yeah. I'm just going to read a little bit from the, the, the welcoming, welcome, the welcome message from the board from 1993. What is this list about? This list is for detailed discussion of Unix security holes, what they are, how to exploit, and what to do to fix them. This list is not intended to be about cracking systems or exploiting their vulnerabilities. It is about defining, recognizing, and preventing use of security holes and risks. Everything submitted to the list is archived, is available to the public. Simply send a message to bugtrack slash request at crimelab.com with the subject archive. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting that's happening around this time sociologically is that helps reform images is, and these are the thing, these are the stories that I grew up on is hacker gets busted, does time, gets out, gets hired by whoever they were hacking. Um, can we, can you talk about why that is like how that is part of this? Um, and what that does to the image of the hacker. And who was the first one? Do you know that? I may be asking a question that's not easy. That's not easy at hand. Um, do, you want to, do you want to go ahead, Bill? No. Why don't you jump in? I mean, I have some some thoughts about this. And I'm also trying to think of the first one, though I, I don't think I have that. Um, so, I, well, I think like there's two things that are interesting to touch on in relation to that question. So, 
like in our report, we mostly focus on um, hackers that were you know publicly doing work to reform the perception of 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 hackers, and so I think like the creation of bug track by Chasen was so um, influential because you know this was a public site where hack, where these former hackers or these current hackers who were trying to identify as as uh, having a certain disposition were you know, engaging with other people in real time, you could, you know, anyone could show up to the, you know, or, you know, look at the archives of the list and see the tenor of the conversation and so on. But um, there were also at this same time hackers that were getting out of jail or whatever and starting to work for companies. So I think one of the earliest ones, if not the first one was fiber optic, uh, Mark Abini, who was, uh, a member of MOD, the the rival uh, group of the Legion of Doom, and I, I'm not sure what year he got out of jail, but he he went to work for uh, you know a company pretty early on. But often these hackers that had had criminal records, when they were employed, the, the companies did not advertise the fact that they were employing these people. You know, like they 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 didn't feel like the um, like hacker hackers had you know, refurbish their reputation sufficiently that they could do that and maintain the trust of their clients. So you actually also had at this time, a lot of companies talking about how they were hiring hackers, but they were only, they, they weren't using them in any client facing work because the, they wanted the clients to feel like they could trust that these, these hackers weren't going to get into their, you know, back end and do something fishy or whatever. Um, Did you have some? Yeah. Idea yeah. Real? I mean, uh, two things. Um, well, one is, I mean, that's precisely right. And one of the things we do in the report is try to locate that moment, uh, in the late nineties, early two thousands, when finally some companies and at stake being the most famous one who kind of acquired the loft, you know, very proudly advertised that there were gray hat hackers working for them. And this was really a watershed moment because again, these companies were hiring them, but, but quite quietly, you know, and there was always this risk. And we have some great um, uh, quotes in our report where, you know, some of these hired hackers were sort of told, you know, you know, you better not go to DEF CON or you better if you go like no pictures, we don't want to see any pictures of you. Right. And so there was definitely this turning point in the late 90s, early 2000s. And it was a turning point, but the specter of the term hacker and the threats against um, hackers and also security researcher never went away, right? It just um, had been more acceptable. And then, you know, the threat would kind of come and go um, after 2000. But certainly before that period, it was really um, just something was very hush-hush. Well, and it's funny, too, because obviously these companies needed the hackers, right? Um, it, was, it seems like they were the only people that were doing this kind of work at the time, right? And, it, and they had to bring them on. Um, so it's just interesting to watch that happen. I mean, that, that remains a source of contention, I think, in the computer security industry, whether they, whether they needed the hackers or not, right? Because... There was one, you know, full disclosure was also kind of, um, you know, like the, the flip side of full disclosure was like an approach to security that is often called security by obscurity, right? Where the idea is that systems will be more secure, even if they, even if systems do have vulnerabilities, they will be more secure in practice if those vulnerabilities are not known because less people will have the information they need to exploit them. So obviously hackers push back on that uh, philosophy for a number of reasons. And, you know, we detail some of those in the report, but um, you know, after the period we cover in this report, there was actually a pretty sizable backlash within the computer security community to the arrival of these hacker of these, you know, professionalized hackers um, because a lot of people saw them as basically selling the the cure to the disease that they themselves had had you know, unleashed, you know. They're the um, firemen coming to put out the fire after they've set it, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. 
Exactly. exactly. So for a lot, a lot of people in that industry would prefer that these hackers had just just gone away completely. They didn't think their skills were needed. Um, they didn't think the attention that they were drawing to these issues were helpful. And the alternative perspective was, was, you know, coming from systems administrators who were upset that they weren't hearing about these vulnerabilities from CERT. And so they couldn't uh, take steps to fix the issue um, because they didn't know they existed. Right. So these two things were kind of playing off each other and, and continue to, to some extent to this day, you know, you know, there's very briefly one of the great stories. It's not in our report, but it's something I've worked on and did a short BBC podcast on. And in France, in the late 1990s, two intelligence organizations took very different approaches to computer hacking. One decided to recruit arrested hackers because they didn't know how to hack, right? They didn't know how to hack. Let's go to these youthful guys. And they did help. They were recruited either to do military service or meet with them once a month. A competing intelligence organization was like, are you nuts, you know, enrolling these like petty criminal, petty criminals? And then they just retrained their cryptographers to hack. Um, you know, personally, I do think these hackers had tremendous, tremendous skills and knowledge um, that was really important that they acquired through these many years and this decade of exploration, right? Um, but nevertheless, probably, you know, there could have been other sources of security expertise, but nevertheless, I think both their skills and their adversarial style were really important because you know what? Microsoft did not want to change. Yeah. You know, they had to be pushed. And you know what? Professors are not going to do that. <laughs> that sort of pushing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think the the greatest like testament to the fact that these hackers did truly have skills uh, was that you know, we talked to a former NSA hacker who who said that in the you know in the late nineties they were they were reading frack and sometimes getting you know novel um, information out of it. So it wasn't even that you know that there was like you know these 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 intelligence you know like secret hacker um technologists working for the government that always knew all of the same stuff uh, there there was real knowledge being generated by the hackers you know according to anecdotes like that let's talk about um then using that as a segue what is loft heavy industries and why is it important to this story what does it do that nobody else did so yeah, Loft takes a central role in the section that really addresses the kind of media and linguistic work that was done to rehabilitate the image of the hacker. And the Loft is a uh, Boston slash Cambridge, Massachusetts based group um, that was interesting because they actually met in a Loft in person, right? And so there were many other kind of hacker groups, but many of them were sort of internet based. I mean, there were definitely some other exceptions that were face to face, but they were kind of very, very um, tight uh, group of people who, as the kind of 90s wore on, um, they both, first of all, participated in full disclosure by publishing um, advisories uh, around vulnerabilities. They also wrote cracking software like Loftcrack, which um, allowed you to kind of get access to Microsoft passwords really easily. They really pushed against Microsoft as well in terms of, you know, Microsoft's uh, inability to even admit that they had uh, bad security. But they were also very invested in um, professionalizing, you know, and professionalizing in a way, first of all, like they wanted to be a self-sustaining um, entity. Like even initially, it wasn't like they were trying to make like huge bucks. They were just like wanting to do their work and get paid for it. And it was remarkably hard actually to pull that off. It was not easy. Um, and in order to do that, they knew that they had to, when they worked with the media, convey that they were the good guys, right? And they had a media strategy, they had a business strategy. And interestingly enough, they also did not want to lose ties with the hacker community. They knew what happened to ComSec 
again, this first company that tried to get off the ground. And so even as they were moving towards the professional sphere, they didn't want to cut ties with the kind of hacker community. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons they kind of published information and talked to anyone was a way to kind of retain ties to the hacker underground. And eventually they settled on the term gray hats, uh, which we detailed like when they came up with the term. It was actually one of these really remarkable, um, remarkably hard things to pin down. But gray hat was a kind of term that encapsulated their working philosophy, um, that they make the theoretical practical, that they're willing to talk to different sort of parties, that they aren't, you know, wholly captured by the corporate world. They're also not wholly part of the underground. Um, and so they're just very, very important for, you know, um, that move from underground to above ground security researcher. I have a, a, I've got a little bit of a tangent question. One of our viewers just brought something up. I think it's, it's a good, it's a good point to remember when we're having these conversations. Um, this is all very America centric, right? Mm -hmm. It's extremely USA centric. This is USA hacking culture. Um, I know this is outside of the realms of the report, but what do we know about how hacking developed and its culture developed in other parts of the world? I'll jump in very briefly. I mean, okay. one of, we did interview some people from uh, um, the Hacker's Choice and Tezo as well. Um, one of the people was also an editor of FRAC. Um, ADM, which I'm going to butcher if I say, but it's a really important French hacker group that was just so respected for their ability to uh, find vulnerabilities and write exploits, right? And um, certainly uh, we felt like, okay, so little of this history has been written. We had much more access to the American side, so we told that story. Right. But there's an interesting kind of both parallel story in Europe and also one that diverges, right? Right. And the parallel story is that some of the ADM guys also went on to found really big, important companies as well, right? And so there, there is a parallel history. But I think also hacking wasn't quite as demonized. The threats weren't as quite as bad. That said, again, the French state infiltrated the, the French hacker underground as well. Um, but uh, I think also, you know, another difference with Europe is, again, while there's a few very, very big security firms in France, I mean, France is a leader when it comes to cybersecurity firms, right? Um, you know, other parts like Germany, for example, you just, um, I think, didn't have quite as strong financial incentives in the 2000s. Whereas in the United States, I mean, the security industry was just like so lucrative as well, right? And that also shifted things quite a bit. And I think that story is slightly different as well in, in uh, different parts of Europe. Uh, thank you for that, Leldings. I hope I didn't screw up your, your username. There's a really great, really great point. And I think it's given me an idea for another episode of Cyber that we'll do where we try to, we try to track down hacker culture in other parts of the world and figure out what was going on there. But back to this. Um, okay. So this kind of brings us around to this, this term that really struck me. Uh, what is security by the spectacle? So, yeah, I mean, this actually relates to the last question in an interesting way, because we, we call, we basically, you know, notice that one of the main mechanisms by which uh, hackers were able to kind of legitimate themselves and eventually professionalize was by, you know, drawing not, not only attention to these kind of security issues on like niche mailing lists like bug track, but also, you know, launching them into, into like the mainstream attention. Right. So when we're, we're, when we use the term security of, but, um, by spectacle, we are thinking of like um, like the cult of the dead cows creation of the of a uh, a hacking tool called Back Orifice, which was a, a play on 
Microsoft's remote administration tool called Back Office, and it was designed to allow you know remote administration, but not necessarily with the user's permission. And it was you know released with a, a lot of media kind of um, you know stunts associated with it and so on. And so, so it was talked about in that's what in happens the when you media. let people get bored in Lubbock. You know. <laughs> Yeah, the I think the the developer of Back Orifice, Sardistic, uh, Josh uh, Bootbinder, was I think he was living in San Francisco at the time, but he was definitely uh, associating with the Grandmaster Rat, the uh, the Lubbock, Texas founder of CDC, um, Rate, I think. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, you know, so, so basically, we were. Like it seemed like the, this legitimation process owed so much to you know basically staging these confrontations, these these moral confrontations between the hackers and the vendors like Microsoft uh, in very very public forums like you know like the New York Times, and um, so so it's that ability to garner spectacle and then um, as the CDC put it in in one of their um, morality alert press releases related to this to 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 stage their you know or to uh, put their actions against Microsoft and see see who looks better in black right um and 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 i think variations on on that logic played out all over all over the world for sure i mean in the in in the in the european context um something we could call security by spectacle was used by the uh, chaos computer club as early as like the mid 1980s when they uh, took money from a, from a bank uh, yep. exchange, I believe, and then gave it back to demonstrate that they could do it. Right. So that also, you know, like I, I would love to see, you know, see more examples of where that kind of logic or that kind of mechanism were used in different contexts to, 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 to make the public or the government in different places realize that hackers could actually be, you know, expose things that were in the public interest, uh, not necessarily to be employable, but to be, you know, civic minded technologists or whatever. Right. Let me, let me bring it into the present then, because I feel like this mirrors stories that I read every week on motherboard, usually by Lorenzo or Joseph Cox about, what's going on in the crypto space right now, constantly the security issues with the blockchain and with cryptocurrency are being exposed. You know, I think Lorenzo broke another story today. Um, the hacker said, you know, I'm willing to give it back if X, Y, Z conditions are met. Um, and, you know, obviously there are also rug pulls and, you know, crypto.com gets drained to $15 million and uh, you get to watch live. It's as it's laundered through the Ethereum blockchain and they don't seem interested in giving it back, right? But th- that eth- ethos lives on, right? We're still seeing it mm-hmm. every day, right? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, with crypto in particular, I I know the you know the 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 big DAO hack. I don't remember how long ago that was, but a lot of people cr- credit that as like a you know a security by spectacle kind of moment where it demonstrated in this very spectacular way some of the crucial insecurities of that technology and i don't know if it's you know developers today trying to recuperate that moment to you know remain bullish or whatever or if uh, but uh, i mean i think at that time i remember following that closely and there was some signals that the person who who did that hack actually did it as a you know proof of concept oh, uh, attack to, to, yeah, to generate change in the in how those yeah. technologies were developing no, I was just actually one of my students um, is doing a project on Ethereum. So I was just reading her dissertation proposal and it was so clear that it was it was staged. It was done to force a conversation. A conversation was forced. I mean, the community almost broke apart. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it it remains as a, a vital uh, procedure and it has to, you know, because. Obviously, security is much better today, um, whether it is, you know, programmers who already have security in mind when they're building software, whether it's bug bounty programs, whether it's auditing, you know, there's structures in place in a way that there wasn't before. Google's forcing yet, everyone to do 2FA on their email accounts now. It, 
Exactly. But whether it is the fact that there's not enough resources combined with the true complexity, it's a wicked problem. You know, you do need these outsiders to kind of push the issue and put it on the agenda. Right. And again, it's it's hackers who tend to do this. It's not people who were trained in the academy. That's not in their ethos to go that route. Mm-hmm. And, and this also gets to another super interesting dynamic because, I mean, crypto is obviously extremely controversial. There are people who don't want it to exist whatsoever. Um, but likewise, you know, there were people who didn't want Microsoft to improve its security and continue to be able to exert so much influence over the software market, right? And so actually, like right after the period we cover in our report, you started to have a, a movement up here called anti-sec. Uh, which was, you know, also, you know, very diehard underground hackers who were seeing this kind of professionalizing trend as a, a threat to the, to the hack, you know, the underground hacker community, but also as ultimately like a, you know, a recuperative kind of force that was, you know, bringing hackers back in line with the mainstream establishment and its politics, and so they argued against things like full disclosure. Uh, on the on the grounds that they were helping to improve a security industry that ultimately benefited, you know, U.S. hegemony, or the, that was one of the logics, right? So it's also interesting that, like, security by spectacle also, you know, in relation to crypto or in relation to more conventional computer security is ultimately, like, a, a force that even as it is very antagonistic, it is it is designed to improve the thing itself and not to destroy it. Right. Right. It exists within the system itself and seeks ultimately to continue to prop it up. Right. Yeah. That's exactly it. Very well put. Um, And I think that is probably a pretty good place to close out before I want to talk to you about for another hour about more of the ideological underpinnings and what the current (sighs) wars are. Let me, let me ask you this as one to go out on. Um, what does hacker culture look like in 2022? Where are we at? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's, I think, um, one thing that is clear is that there are certain um, elements that are very established. Like, we have a security world, lots of hackers work in InfoSec, right? That's not going to go away. Um but I will say this, it's not so much the present, but, you know, in some ways it was as if the underground had died. You know, there, there, there wasn't that much of a scene except for some real diehards or people who were very quiet. Um, and yet then in 2011, 12, 13, 14, you have Anonymous, the hacktivists, who, who are using some of the same tactics from the underground, but for hacktivism. And in fact, Jeremy Hammond... Um, who was Central Anonymous, was partly inspired by the anti-sec movement who went, you know, hardcore against the white hats and gray hats, right? And he didn't like their politics because their politics was just about cultural autonomy, but he loved their direct action methods, right? And so him and then others kind of like reinvented underground hacking for a different purpose for leaking and hacking and exposing corruption. Right. And I like that example just because sometimes it's just really hard to predict what will emerge, you know, from these different worlds. Uh, But finally, again, I do think blockchain is a very interesting area just because there's so much activity. They're changing the economy. There's so many security implications. Right. So that's a domain. Um, that I think is particularly important in the hacker world. Um, but again, I think that there will be surprises, um, even as there's very kind of established areas in hackerdom that kind of interface with the establishment. I think that's a great place to close out on. Uh, Gabriella Coleman and Matt, I'm going to screw your name up. Gertson? Gertson. Yes, you got Gertson. It. Sorry, the the paper is wearing many hats. You can you can read it uh, online. Just it's at datasociety.net. Uh, the rise of the professional security hacker. If you liked the show, please uh, you know like, subscribe, rate us on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you are on watching us live on Twitch and you came late, it will be up as a podcast tomorrow morning. 
Um, and we will be back next week with another cyber at 4 p.m. Eastern here on Twitch. And I'm going to let this music play us out. It's lovely, lovely music. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.